I want to encourage you after the service is over to come up front. I'll be standing up here with Alex and his family. Um, if you come and talk with him, there's also information, contact information for him uh, on the back if you want to follow up with him, uh, a way to donate. Uh, there's his um, uh, website there, socalruf.org, and then his email address as well. So please come and say hello to them after the service is over. You also have a, an insert into your bulletin about the fellows program. Uh, that gets started up here probably just in the next few weeks. Uh, I know that they still have a need for two host homes to host one of our fellows for about nine months. If you're interested in that, see, check the email address at the very bottom, Sarah Rios. Um, you can email her. Uh, please check this out. Read up on our fellows program here uh, at First Press. Okay, Matthew chapter 13. We're in chapter 13 again like we were last week. Uh, verses 44 through 50 is what we'll be studying today. Um, page 819, uh, I believe, in your pew Bible. This is the conclusion of a four-week study we've been doing on the kingdom of God. Uh, there's lots more that, that could be said uh, about the kingdom of God. I just chose these four passages. Uh, next Sunday, uh, Chip will be back, and he'll start uh, a study through 1 Corinthians. Uh, so I know you want to be here uh, as that series begins. Two other, sorry, a lot of information. This is information overload on the front end here. Two more programming things. Sunday, September 18th, uh, Rick Canada will be here preaching in both services, uh, former pastor here. Uh, also talking about ministry in Indonesia and RTS Atlanta. And then looking into October, our, our equip session, our annual theological conference will be October 14th to the 16th. Uh, Dr. Mike Kruger from RTS in Charlotte will be here. He's going to be talking about the reliability of the Bible. Uh, how do we know we can trust it? Uh, in, in an age where nobody believes that there's any kind of authoritative truth, how do we know we can trust it? How do we know we have the right books in the Bible? Those would be some of the things he talks about. Uh, I encourage you to be here for that. The kingdom of God. The first week, we defined our term. It's the reign and rule of God, wherever we see that, wherever we see faith in Christ, wherever we see uh, him being obeyed. That's the kingdom. It's a spiritual place, not a physical place. Then we talked about seeking the kingdom of God. We don't seek our own kingdom. We don't even worry about our life. We seek after God and his will. We do whatever he tells us to do. Then last week, we looked at the, um, the growth of the kingdom, the mustard seed and the leaven. And we desire to see that kingdom grow in our own hearts, in our cities, and around the world. This morning, I'm asking you to look inwardly at your own heart. Think personally, okay? What is your Christianity actually costing you? Is it costing you anything? You see, there are these two men in these first two parables. We're going to look at all three, the, um, the pearl, the hidden treasure, and the net. But the first two, they have found something of great value and worth, and they realize it's going to cost them everything. Does your Christianity cost you anything? Well, those things in mind, let me read for us Matthew 13, 44 through 50. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, and then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net, that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be a weeping and gnashing of teeth. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's pray. <clears throat> 
Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. In every part it's true, we can trust it. Lord, we thank you that the kingdom, the kingdom of God and the salvation that you offer through Christ is priceless. It's a worth that we cannot imagine. And Lord, you call us to do all that we can to obtain it. Lord, that we would take very seriously the cost that it requires to be a Christian. Not the cost of salvation to ourselves, for that is a free gift, but the cost of walking daily with Christ. And that we would see it as of surpassing, unsurpassing value. Lord, would you be with us now as we study from your word? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I don't know how many of you have seen the movie National Treasure. Uh, it came out in 2004. You've probably seen it. I, I joked with the first service. There's there's several movies that are on TV like all the time. Uh, National Treasure is one of them. Shawshank Redemption, uh, and somebody added to it this morning. Uh, Air Force One. Uh, I bet you go if you go home uh, this after. Oh, and a few good men. Those that was the other one that I wanted to mention. I bet if you go home this afternoon, one of those movies is going to be playing on television. That's not the point. The point is National Treasure. Uh, The whole drive of this movie starts with a clue that this family has received. Nicolas Cage is the main character in this movie. Benjamin Gates is his character. And his forefathers received a clue that was eventually supposed to lead to this priceless treasure. World history, gold and silver, all sorts of things. And the clue is this, that the secret lies with Charlotte. But nobody knows what that means. All of his forefathers have been trying to interpret this uh, this clue, but they haven't gotten anywhere, but it's come at great, great cost to them. They've been searching. They've been uh, spending much, a lot of money trying to figure out what this, what this means. What, what's Charlotte? What secret is this talking about? To the point where they are thought of just this crazy treasure hunting family, okay? Uh, really made fun of for the, the, the Gates name is made fun of because of all these treasures that supposedly exist, but Benjamin Gates comes along at the beginning of this movie, and he figures out the clue. Charlotte is actually a sunken ship in Antarctica, and so he leads this, this crew, and they dig it up, and within this ship is a pipe, and on this pipe is a scroll that has a clue that leads them to the Declaration of Independence, which they steal, okay? On the back of the Declaration of Independence is another clue, which leads to another and another and another, and the penultimate moment of this, of this movie is they're in this empty room that they think is supposed to house the treasure, but it's nowhere to be found, and they're devastated. But then they remember the first clue, that the secret lies with Charlotte. And so they take out the pipe that they had found long ago, and in this little indention in the wall, they place the pipe and the stem of the pipe, and voila, the wall opens, and then there's the treasure. (laughs) A small fraction of it turns them into multi-billionaires. There's scrolls, apparently, from the Library of Alexandria. There's all this world history there. Benjamin Gates almost ruined his life in search of this great treasure that he was certain was there, but nobody else believed him. His whole family were sought as kooks because they had pursued this treasure their whole life. He had given up much money to try to find this. Maybe that's a silly illustration for what's going on here, but these two men give up everything to have the kingdom of God. Very likely their thought is crazy. You're selling everything for a pearl? You're selling everything for that ugly plot of land? Yeah, I am. Because what's there is of far greater value than you could ever imagine. It's the kingdom of God and the salvation that he offers in Christ. The worth of the kingdom of God, it's immeasurable. You couldn't possibly put a price tag on it. And as a result, we must give all of who we are to obtain it, 
and to persevere within it. So first, I want to examine the first two parables. We'll take the last parable and the last point. So I want to look at these, kind of unpack them, and then we'll apply some application and illustration. The first two parables, let's look at how the two men, the different ways in which they search for the treasure. Really, for all of us, you could kind of lump us. For those of us who found the kingdom of God and salvation, we really fall into one of two categories. People who weren't looking for it and found it. People who were looking for something and then stumbled upon it as well. No, there's no one-size-fits-all for how we come to Christ, but there's two basic or general categories. Number one, the parable of the hidden treasure. In In this parable, the man stumbles upon the treasure. He isn't looking for it. Likely he's plowing this field or working this field, and he just happens to run into the treasure. Now, why is he working a field that's not his own? I don't know. Uh, maybe he's, he's renting it, or maybe he's working the ground for his master. That's very possible. But he's tending to the business and routine of the day, and he just happens to find this great treasure. It's very likely this, this was a, a scene and a scenario that would have been completely understandable to the people. Okay, Back, the, back in this, these biblical times, a man such as this would not have had a bank that he could have gone to Uh, to go and store his money. There wasn't a safety deposit box to put his valuables. If you had something that was of great value to you, you dug a hole and you stuck it in there. That was the bank. That was how you were going to keep something safe. So he has stumbled upon this treasure that's likely been buried in that manner. He stumbles upon it, not looking for it. But once he finds it, he realizes the great value that it has, sells everything so that he may have this land and then therefore this treasure. Next, the parable of the pearl. There's a merchant who is searching for fine pearls. You see the difference? This man is searching for something. He's probably, for years, he's been looking for, uh, that pearl's nice and it's lovely, but that's not what I'm looking for. Oh, okay, this one over here is beautiful too, but, and then finally he finds that's the one. That's the one of great value. That's the one I've got to have. He sells everything so he can have that pearl. One man's searching for something, and one man is not. One man kind of stumbles over it. One man's looking for something, but he's not quite sure exactly what it is. We are the same way. Maybe you stumbled into the kingdom of God, or maybe you're like the second man. You tried a lot of faiths. You tried a lot of ideologies. You tried a lot of isms. And then one day, it clicked. The kingdom of God became real to you and began to believe in it. One man's going about his ordinary chores of the day, not expecting anything, and one man is searching for something. The search is different, but the response is the same. They see the great value of the kingdom, and they know they must do whatever it takes to obtain it. I believe that my testimony, personally, fits in line with a first person, the hidden treasure. It may seem odd to say that of someone like me, who grew up in a Christian home, I went to a Christian school, I went to a university and got involved in the campus ministry and Bible studies and on and on and on. I was happy and content, but I was happy and content in my self-righteous life. I was a churchgoer, yes, I, I was involved in the ministries, I said, but, you know, I wasn't getting drunk at parties, I wasn't sleeping with my girlfriend, and I wasn't cheating on my taxes. So what could be wrong? But I looked at disdain at my fraternity brothers, never imagining that I was just as lost as they were. I wasn't looking for God because I felt like I had already found him. But what I was really trusting in was myself. 
I knew that God was important, and I knew that Jesus needed to die on the cross for me, but that was kind of a supplement to what I had already done. It was important, but it certainly wasn't everything to me. I wasn't looking for God, but he was certainly looking for me. And God continued to put great friends in my life, people who continued to invite me to a PCA church. I had no idea what that meant when I went to college. What is this? But I finally went because I was tired of going to church by myself. And I began to hear preaching that I had never heard before that was very interesting, making the Bible come alive to me, and the Holy Spirit made all this come alive to my own heart. Then a church was planted closer to campus, and I started going to that. And I got to know the pastor who discipled me and mentored me and taught me how to preach. And then eventually he would marry Lauren and me. By God's grace, he had me stumble upon the kingdom of God, though I would have said I was already in the kingdom of God, but I certainly was not. I realized I was not truly a Christian because I was clinging to Andy. I wasn't clinging to Christ. For others of you, you have spent years searching for something. You were not churched growing up. But you, ser- you were searching after truth in all different places, all different religions, or as I mentioned, ideologies or, or whatever it was, and nothing seems fulfilling or satisfying to you until finally you found Christ. But we both found him the same way. We found him as a result of the Holy Spirit showing us the value of this kingdom and the salvation that there is through Christ. It wasn't that one was better than another. No matter how you found the kingdom and how salvation was gained, it was all from the same source. At no point are we to praise ourselves for the manner in which we found this kingdom because of the Holy Spirit that showed us. He changed our hearts to want it and to recognize it once it was found. You see, the prize that we have in the kingdom is far greater than anything that we could ever have on this earth, but we've got to be convinced of that because that does not come naturally. Or maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're still searching. You don't see the great value of what we're talking about here. You don't see the great value of Christ and his kingdom. Pray that you would. Pray that you would see it, but that it's going to be very costly. Because once we begin following the king, as we've talked in weeks before, it must cost us something. So number two, the search is now over. Now the value or the cost of the kingdom. The treasure's been found. Everything's been given up to obtain it. Now what do we do? Those who are convinced that the kingdom of God and eternal life are valuable, it doesn't matter what the cost is because you must have that prize and that treasure. Notice that each of these men come at it with joy, but they just lost everything. Don't forget that. Don't let their joy cause you to forget what they've given up for this kingdom. Everything. And the ridicule that likely came with it. The cost of following Christ and persevering with him to eternal life is high and it's difficult. This passage is not saying that money will buy salvation or that money can buy our entrance in the kingdom of God. It's highlighting that it ought to be and must be costly to us. But whatever the cost, it's worth it. Jesus says in Luke chapter 14, who of us, if we're going to sit down, he says build a tower, but we can say who of us is going to sit down and build anything, but not first count the cost. What materials do I need? Do I need to hire anybody to help me? How long is this going to take? There's all sorts of costs that you must count first. Who's going to go to war and not first sit down and count the cost? How many men do I need? How good is the army army we're going against? What weaponry do we need? 
What's the, what's the layout of the land that we're going to be fighting upon? You count the cost first. Jesus is saying we must do that with our Christianity. What is it going to cost? J.C. Ryle, in his book Holiness, uh, a great book that I commend to you, he has a cha- chapter 5 in that book, talks directly about this point. Uh, in fact, I believe the, the chapter is the cost or counting the cost. He says this, It's common to see people receive the word with joy and then after two or three years fall away going back to their sins. They had not considered what it cost to be a really consistent believer and holy Christian. Surely there are times when we ought often to sit down and count the cost and to consider the state of our souls. We may thank God for putting the desire into our hearts, but still the cost ought to be counted. No doubt Christ's way to eternal life is a way of pleasantness, but it's folly to shut our eyes to the fact that his way is narrow and the cross comes before the crown. I'm not examining what it costs to save a Christian soul. I know well that it costs nothing less than the blood of the Son of God to provide an atonement and to redeem man from hell. The point I want to consider is another one altogether. It is what a man must be ready to give up if he wishes to be saved, for it does cost something to be a real Christian, according to the standard of the Scriptures. Ryle goes on to mention four things that our Christianity must cost us. Number one, it will cost us our self-righteousness, he says. There is no room for us to boast in anything. Now, when we think of it in terms of our salvation, we say, oh yeah, Andy, I know that. I know that I have no boasting. All my boasting is in Christ. Where you don't want to hear it, though, is we have nothing to boast in, even in our everyday lives, in the very gifts that we have been given. Well, now, wait a minute. I've worked hard. I've worked hard for what I've done. I've earned everything that I've gotten. Yes, you have, and yes, you have worked very hard, but the Lord has given you those gifts and abilities to do what you love and to earn the things that you have earned. We have no boasting. Everything that we have comes from Christ. Number two, it will cost us our sins. Again, of course it will. We've got to be forgiven. We've got to have our sins washed away. That's included in the meaning, but there's something more than that. It's going to cost you your sins even now that you have been justified in Christ. It's going to mean that we fight against our sin. We, we put to death our sin. We, we grapple with it. We put on the full armor of God, and we're prepared to go to battle with Satan. Ryle says, our sins are often as dear to us as our children. We love them, we hug them, we cleave to them, and we delight in them. We do. We have sin in our life that we simply will not let go of, and we must. Number three, it will cost us our love of ease. This one gets right down to the jugular here. This is hard because there's nothing we dislike more as trouble with our Christianity. Anything that requires exertion is entirely against the grain of our hearts. Yeah, keep telling me about the crown, Andy, that we're going to get in one day when Christ comes again. But just don't tell me about the cross. It's got to come first. We want to talk about salvation and glorification and all those things, but not the day-to-day grind of Christianity that's sometimes very difficult and costly. It will mean uncertainty in life. It will mean confusion. It will mean, Lord, I have no idea what you're doing with me in my life right now, and why aren't you telling me more? It will mean we walk by faith and not by sight. Number four, it will cost us favor with the world. We don't know a whole lot about that here in Macon, Georgia. The people around this country, Alex understands this better than we do in Southern California. People around the world understand being a Christian means falling out of favor with the world. 
you're crazy for what you believe. You're backwards. You're archaic. That's what comes. That's part of the costliness of Christianity. Ryle says in closing, I grant that it costs much to be a true Christian, but who in his sound senses can doubt that it is worth any cost to have the soul saved? When the ship is in danger of sinking, the crew think nothing of casting overboard the precious cargo. When a limb is mortified, a man will submit to any severe operation and even to amputation to save his life. Surely a Christian should be willing to give up anything which stands between him and heaven. A religion that costs nothing is worth nothing. A cheap Christianity without a cross will prove in the end to be a useless Christianity without a crown, he says in closing. Christians, we count the cost in our life all the time. You're constantly counting the cost of things. I want to lose 10 pounds. Okay, well, how am I going to do that? Maybe I don't need to cram fast food every day for lunch. That would be a way that you could, not, you could start to lose the weight that you wanted. Maybe you need to wake up, you need to go to bed a little earlier and wake up earlier so that you have an opportunity to, to exercise. There's any number of ways that you, you count your calories or you count your points or whatever it is. You count the cost so that you can lose the weight that you want. Or you want to go on a vacation next summer, okay? Well, honey, we need to sit down and we need to figure out how much money, we're, where are we going to go and how much money is that going to cost? Where's that money going to come from? We want to send our kids to a certain school. Well, how are we going to make that work? Let's sit down and figure that out. Great athletes are constant. I want to be a better basketball player. Well, I'm going to have to put in time and effort and energy to be better. We want to win a championship this year. Well, what's it going to take? How hard are we going to have to practice? You're constantly thinking about these things in your own life, yet when it comes to our Christianity, I don't want to think about that. It shouldn't cost me anything, or I don't want it to cost me anything. I want it to only be pleasant. I want the crown, but don't talk to me about the cross. Have we really counted the cross, counted the cost, excuse me, of what it means to be a Christian? You see, there's a great warning to this passage, isn't there? Jesus is warning us, have you considered this? Of course we want to talk and we're interested about all the wonderful things that come with Christianity, but there is a cost as well. We see the joys of the great prize of salvation, but there's a life to live in between. You may have been in the church for years and years, attending services in Sunday school. You may have your kids here every time the doors are open so that they're involved in our children's program. But your Christianity isn't costing you anything. Yes, you come to church. Is it costing you something to be a Christian? I think we need this warning today. We need this passage to literally smack us in the face, if you will. Because the attraction of the world is very strong. It captivates us, it distracts us, and it seduces us. The pull of the world distracts and blinds us to where the thoughts of eternal life just fade away from our consciousness. But these men and these two stories, they're joyful about giving up everything. They can't wait because eternal life is what they get. They get to be with God for eternity. They get, literally, they get everything by giving up all that they've given up. Paul says the same thing in Philippians chapter 3. I count it all loss. Everything I have is loss for the sake of gaining Christ. Nothing else matters as long as I have him. You see, for many of us, we wouldn't admit this out loud, and we wouldn't say this to anybody that we know well. There are a lot of things that we love more than Jesus. The thought of losing your money, your home, the thought of losing your vacation home, the thought of your easy, comfortable life is a crushing and anxious-filled prospect for many of us. 
And though you'd never say it out loud either, you would rather, rather lose Jesus than lose these things. Be honest. We don't value the kingdom and we don't seek it because we don't want the cost that's involved. And if that's true, then we must heed this final parable, which is the warning. So number three, the warning. It's a powerful parable that I think really stamps kind of an exclamation point on all these kingdom parables that we've looked at. Jesus isn't really offering any new information to us. He's adding emphasis. He's calling the question to your mind. Okay. Jesus again gives a parable that would have been very familiar to the situation of life of his hearers. He's either sitting on the shore or he's sitting in a boat. He's talking to people as they're listening, and he talks about fishing. Perfect. (laughs) They would have understood. Fishermen throw out their nets, they drag them in, and they catch all sorts of fish. They bring it to the boat, and then likely they go and sit on the beach, and they start sifting through these fish. Oh, this is a good one. We'll throw that in the good pile. Oh, this one's kind of gross, and we'll put it over here. This one's delicious, and this one is not. And, And there they go, just sorting through the fish, which they would have done likely hundreds of times. What a vivid picture that Jesus is painting here. You wonder why pastors labor so often to tell illustrations and stories. It's because Jesus did it, and he did it so well. Vivid pictures that stick with you and to help understand the teaching. The gospel of salvation is constantly catching us in a net. But just because you're in the net doesn't mean you're in the kingdom. This means you're a part of the net. And one day, in the judgment day, there's going to be a sorting that's involved. There's going to be a dividing to the right and to the left. And not everyone who sits in the pews every Sunday is a part of this kingdom and is inevitably going to be in the right pile. No. The church is a mixture of good and bad. But there is a sorting that is coming. Some will be sorted and saved. Some will be sorted and discarded into the flames of hell. Have you repented of your sins like we talked in the first week, entering yourself into the kingdom of God? Are you now following him as he instructs in that first first sermon? Are you then seeking the kingdom of God? You stop worrying so much about yourself and how the Lord might take care of you. You're seeking his kingdom. God can ask me anything. Look at what he's done for me. And then the third week, we talked about the growth of the kingdom. Do you want other people to be saved? Do you want this city to be on fire for the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you want to see it happen around the world? And then today, have you actually counted the cost of walking with Christ day to day? Jesus begins, uh, in the first two parables, he talks about the wheat and the tares, where people are rejecting the word of God. And now he's talking in this parable about God rejecting people. So what do we do with a parable such as this? I hope you won't hear this final parable of the net and forget about it the minute you walk out the door and walk down the steps. That this parable is something you will think about as you eat lunch today, you'll talk about it and think about it as you lay in bed tonight, and you'll talk about it as you drink your coffee in the morning. How important this is. There is a judgment that's coming, Jesus says very clearly, and we will be sorted. How are you going to be sorted? Jesus is essentially calling the question in verse 51. We didn't read it, but he says, he looks at this, the people there and says, have you understood these things? In other words, I've been talking for a long time, says Jesus, do you get what I'm saying here? Do you understand? I ask you now, do you understand these things? Do you see the, uh, the seriousness of this question and the warning that it contains? 
Jesus is issuing the most important challenge that we could ever consider. Are you going to persevere to the end? In the end, are you going to be in Christ? Nowhere does Jesus uh, claim that salvation is divorced from perseverance. It's included in it. There are no shortcuts. As one commentator said, we may be inside the net, but outside of Christ. In the end, we either embrace the gospel counting the cost, or we reject the gospel and therefore pay the cost. Okay, pastor, well then how do I know? How do I know if I'm saved? How do I know how I'm going to be sorted on the judgment day? Well, do you cling to Christ? For your salvation, yes. Do you cling to him for everything? Ever, I mean everything. Do you wake up, Lord, I need you today. I'm not exactly sure how I'm going to need you, but I know I need you. Will you get rid of my self-righteousness? Will you get, of, get rid of my own heart that wants to please me and wants me to be happy? Will you allow me to hold with a very loose grip everything that you've given me in this life, including my children, they're yours, and submitting to you in all things? Do you look at your sin and you renounce it, say, Lord, I'm not going to be perfect. Will you help me to fight against these things that so easily entangle me each and every day? And have you counted the cost And is your Christianity actually costing you anything at all? I don't want to turn this into any kind of a checklist, but there's got to be an understanding of fruit that we've got to see in our life so that we can feel assurance of this salvation that the Lord offers and the treasure that he has for us. R.C. Sproul says, In hell, God will be present in the fullness of his divine wrath. He will be there to exercise his just punishment. They will know him as an all-consuming fire. Perhaps the most frightening aspect of hell is its eternality. People can endure the greatest agony if they know it will ultimately stop. In hell, there is no such hope. The Bible clearly teaches that the punishment is eternal. Hell, then, is an eternity before the righteous, ever-burning wrath of God, a suffering torment from which there is no escape and no relief. Understanding this is crucial to our drive to appreciate the work of Christ and to preach his gospel. I mention that from Sproul because it's such a vivid alternative to what we're talking about. This is what we avoid if we, like these men in this story, give up everything to follow Jesus. You don't want this. We want what is is of unsurpassing value, and that's the kingdom of God. Robert Frost has famously said, two roads diverged in a wood. I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. The road unto salvation is very narrow. But we can travel it because Christ has already taken all this punishment for us. We can understand and look at the doctrine of hell and say, but if I'm in Christ, he's already done all that for me. He's already endured the wrath of God. This burning, consuming fire, he's quenched it on the cross for me if I am in this kingdom and if I love him and if I cling to this Jesus that he has sent for us. And in return, he asks your faith. He's given up everything for us. Therefore, there's nothing he cannot ask of you. There's nothing too difficult because he has shown you the value of this kingdom and he's telling you, cling to me and one day I will give you that crown. I've endured the ultimate cross. I'm asking you to endure some costliness of life for me and to tell others about the greatness of me. Take up your cross and follow me, says Jesus. And in return, there will be a crown waiting for you and an eternal life spent forever with Christ our Savior and God our King. Let's pray.
Dear Lord, these are very weighty things that we consider this morning. And Lord, I pray that you would give us a, a lengthy and honest self-examination. And Lord, that we would be found not in any boasting of ourselves, but to be found in Christ. Lord, that you would give us great assurance that you love us, that you have redeemed us. But even so, you have called us to a life that ought to be costly. But costly so that others might see that. Costly in understanding of all that you have done for us. Lord, would you encourage us much through fellowship with one another, through an understanding of the gospel. Lord, we thank you so much for our time that we've had as we've studied your word. Thank you for this time of worship. And would you be with us as we go from here, encouraged in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.